I love thunderstorms. I've always loved thunderstorms. One of my earliest memories is of watching the gray clouds filling the southern skies of the little frame house in the flat farmland town of Tuscola, Illinois. The clouds roiling, the air filled with the tension of anticipated lightning, then the booming roll of thunder. The anticipation electrifying a young boy's body. I watch fascinated at nature's display. I stare through the screen door of the four-room house with its, to me, wide front porch added by my father. The view to the south, not yet obstructed by the five-room tracked ranch houses that would soon be built between our house and the central and eastern Illinois tracks, dividing Tuscola into the north ward and south ward. I wouldn't learn until much later that those tracks were the central and eastern Illinois. As a child, they were to my ear, the C and E I. C and E I. The huge white letters emblazoned on the black locomotives, mightily pulling the seemingly hours-long trains, blocking every intersection in town. I was safe in that little house. As those ominous clouds filled the afternoon sky, I abandoned my trucks on the gleaming maple hardwood floor my father had so painstakingly installed in the little brown shingled house. I didn't know it was a tiny house. I didn't know we were working class, only a rung or two above poverty. I wouldn't learn that until much later. Much later and many storm clouds later. I knew we had toys, books, and Grandma and Grandpa just down the street. Neither set of grandparents ever came to visit. We always went to their houses to visit. Why? I'm not sure. It just wasn't done. Both sets of grandparents worked in agriculture. My maternal grandfather, a tenant farmer, rented ground, rented house. Grandma Dallas raised a lot full of chickens. The egg money was hers. She always made that clear. They had a cow or two in the barn, an old international pickup, and not much else. My paternal grandfather owned a little business driving a rendering truck. For you city folk, a rendering business picks up the dead, dying, or sick livestock, transports them to a rendering facility where the carcasses are rendered down for the hides and oils. A smelly, dirty, nasty business, but very necessary when you have livestock. His little business ended with a massive stroke leaving him partially paralyzed, leaving him sitting in a green metal lawn chair while still in his early fifties. Going from breadwinner to receiving the meager check of that new government program, Social Security Disability. My grandmother, Enyard, worked as a short-order cook in a grill in downtown Tuscola that smelled of hamburger grease and frying bacon. She made just enough to keep them in Winston cigarettes and a few Falstaff on weekends. They could no longer afford the Masonic dues and the moose conviviality. I remember the smoke-filled holiday parties in the fraternal halls that we attended with them before his stroke and the penury that followed. The contrast between my maternal and paternal grandparents couldn't have been greater, although they were from the same economic strata. My paternal grandparents were labor Democrats. They drank, smoked, and never went to church, although Grandma Inyard would usually watch Sunday ministries on the black-and-white TV 
ensconced in the corner of the tiny living room. Grandma and Grandpa Dallas rock-ribbed Republican dries. Grandpa Dallas chewed until a Southern Baptist minister and elders convinced him that dipping into the folded pouch of Red Man was a mortal sin, too. He gave it up for a wriggly chewing gum. Grandma Dallas told me that she only voted for Franklin Delano Roosevelt once. Grandpa Dallas would refer to a field line fallow in a government subsidy program as Growing Kennedy Oats. John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, not yet assassinated. Grandpa Hunyard, on the other hand, would growl that only the Democrats supported the working man. Roosevelt, a hero to the Inyards, while the devil incarnate to the Dallases. Their source of news limited to the 15-minute nightly national news program on Channel 3, out of Champaign, on at 5.45 p.m. daily. It followed the local news with weather and farm market reports. The weather and market reports, far more important to farm folk than anything Walter Cronkite or Douglas Edwards may have had to say about the national or international scene. Color television's unheard of, and cable news decades in the future. Although far apart in their political views nationally, both sets agreed on isolationism. Both sets sent sons to war, and neither set believed much in American involvement in foreign countries' affairs, nor in foreign aid. The only exception, perhaps, opposition to Russia with its godless communism. The only other thing they agreed upon was that Chicago, that den of inequity, really didn't belong to Illinois. Those big city folks just couldn't be trusted. Even though the Illinois Central ran passenger trains through Tuscola to Chicago multiple times daily, and it was but a two-and-a-half-hour drive up U.S. 45 to the Windy City, I don't know that my paternal grandparents ever went there. Certainly not to my knowledge. My maternal grandmother went once to a hospital. I wasn't to see the skyscrapers of downtown Chicago until a high school junior. You couldn't find an imported car in Douglas County, Illinois, nor an imported television set, radio, or pair of Levi's. Made in Japan was a manufacturing slur, meaning cheap junk, easily broken. Even the pencils grasp in our stubby little fingers, tracing the alphabet on our lined paper tablets, were labeled Made in the USA. The only imported clothes were the exotic silk kimonos brought back from the war by my uncles, exhibited only on rare occasion. Even though the bloody battles of Korea had just ended, there was but one war, the war, World War II. December 7, 1941 to September 2, 1945. Three years, eight months, 26 days, during which the United States grew from a an isolationist, inward-looking country with an army smaller than that of Portugal at the outbreak of the war in 1939 to the superpower which led the coalition to defeat the Axis powers. The war and the depression were the defining facts of my grandparents' and parents' lives, their twin impacts echoing through the decades to still shape the attitudes of working-class, mid-country Americans. To this day, of the two cars, two SUVs, and one pickup that I own, all are American nameplated cars. Chevys, Fords, 
a Cadillac, and Jeeps. Both my sons drive American nameplated cars. Even though they may have a large percentage of imported parts or been assembled in other nations, my father's six years in a UAW plant in the 60s and my summer there on the welding line keep us driving those American nameplates. Subarus may be made in Indiana, Hondas in Ohio, Volkswagens in Tennessee, and BMWs in South Carolina, but they're not UAW made, and they aren't American companies. Some things change slowly in the Midwest among working people. Even though that icon of World War II, Jeep, is now owned by Fiat, by God, it's an American vehicle, so we drive them. And as for that burgundy red Jeep Cherokee that's my daily driver, it bears a red, white, and blue Illinois Veterans License Plate with the number 1969, 1969, the year I enlisted in the Air Force, the year over a half million American service members were in Vietnam. My younger son calls it my get-out-of-jail-free card. My wife refuses to have a veteran's plate on her daily driver. She says it's because she's not a veteran. The real reason? She doesn't like to draw attention. Here in the Midwest, patriotism runs deep. But I refuse to wear one of those damned American flag pins on my suit jacket lapel. I find most of the politicians who wear them to be phony. I, like my Midwestern working-class family and friends, don't like phony. How do I mesh driving a car with a red, white, and blue veteran's plate with refusing to wear an American flag lapel pin? Easy. Anyone can stick a flag pin on their lapel. You can only get a veteran's plate by producing a DD-214 to the DMV. What's a DD-214? Every veteran has one. It's the fading white government form issued when a service member is discharged. I'll confess... I've been tempted on occasion to buy one of those other countries' nameplates. When I faltered, my wife, whose dad sold Pap's Blue Ribbon Beer, the working-class favorite memorialized in the country song Rednecks, White Sox, and Blue Ribbon Beer, released in 1973, and which has been recorded by multiple country and western singers, told me, you can't buy a foreign car after you've told all those union guys how you and your dad were UAW members. Discussion ended. The engine might be made in Brazil, the radio in Germany, the transmission in Mexico, but by God, it's an American car. Those thunderstorms that I loved as a kid on the corn-covered plains of central Illinois presaged the thunderstorms of changing industrial and economic circumstances that now govern the American working-class lives. (laughs) ¶¶ 